Good morning, Highland Community Church. It's good to be with you this morning. If you would bow with me in a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather online, to look at your word, to sing praises a moment ago. Father, regardless of what is going on in our world, you are worthy. You are on the throne. You are God. Father, we do pray for our nation. We ask, Father, that those men and women who have been elected to office, if they do not know you as Savior, that they would hear a clear presentation of the gospel, that you would draw them to a saving knowledge. We pray, Father, that you might give our country a third great awakening, that you might awaken the hearts of men and women and young people, we pray, Father, that we would return to a nation under God, under you, that we would embrace morality and ethics, and we would value life as made in the Imago Dei. We ask, Father, that the rancor and hatred and bitterness and divisiveness that is all around us, that we would not participate in that, that as Christ followers, you would guide us to a better way, a better path, and that you might have your hand of mercy and grace upon our nation. We have turned our back on you repeatedly, but Lord, we ask that your spirit would move, that there would be that awakening, and that there would be a transformation of our country, and you would be glorified. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Some of you may know the name Oliver Cromwell. If you do, you know that he was a general in the 17th century in England. He is routinely voted one of the top 10 leaders in English history. He eventually was given the title Lord Protector. He was the general that rescued England out of civil war at the end of what was then the corrupt Stuart monarchy. He initiated a new army, the new model army that allowed England to become a world power once again. What you may not know about Oliver Cromwell is that he was a born-again believer. He came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ at age 30. He was universally considered a godly, pious man. And he called for a free church. That was his phrase. What is Highland? It's an evangelical free church. He was using the phrase as we use the phrase. He wanted churches to hire their own pastors. He wanted pastors to preach exegetical sermons that are about God rather than about government. He wanted pastors to pray extemporaneously rather than using the Anglican book of prayer. He wanted the church to be a light on a hill, Augustine's phrase. Why am I giving you this little tidbit about Oliver Cromwell? Is it because we just passed an election? No. Actually, I wrote the sermon a few months ago. I'm giving it to you because there is a poem about Oliver Cromwell 
that talks about a woman named Bessie that I think illustrates the text very well. Now in those days, most cities in Europe were walled. And somewhere before dusk, the sexton would pull on the rope for the bell tower and the clapper would go against the brass and it would warn people that the gates were about to be closed. They would be locked for the night. That way, intruders could not enter the city. Armies could not enter the city. The walls would protect the city. There was a second aspect of that clapper hitting the brass at dusk. Anyone who had been tried that day and convicted of a capital offense, as the clapper hit the brass and as the bell rang, the execution would take place. Well, earlier that day, a gal named Bessie, who was engaged to a man, her man was convicted of spying. His name was Basil Underwood. Now, it is likely that Basil Underwood really wasn't a spy. He was innocent. But in those days, sometimes you were just convicted whether the evidence pointed in your direction or not. So this gal, Bessie, went to the sexton, knowing that her man, Basil, would be executed as soon as he pulled the, the string and the clapper hit the brass on both sides, her man would be executed. So she went to the sexton and she said, tonight, please, please don't ring the bell. But the sexton said, hey, it's my job. I can't do anything about it. And at that point, Bessie slipped away. She slipped into the bell tower. She went up the spiraling staircase to the top of the bell tower and she wrapped her body around the clapper. And when the sexton went to pull on the rope for the bell, all that he got was this dull thud because the clapper was no longer hitting the brass, but Bessie's body was being swung back and forth, bruised and battered, but no sound rang out. Well, as it turns out, Oliver Cromwell was in the city that night. And when he heard of Bessie's love, Bessie's self-sacrifice, Bessie spending herself on behalf of another, he looked into the case and rather than convicting Basil Underwood, he was exonerated and he was freed. Love had won out. And today's text is about love. I want to pick up and read 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8a and then verse 13. Listen to God's word. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith so as to move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. 
Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, verse 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. We're all very familiar with 1 Corinthians 13. It's kind of the hallmark chapter of the Bible. I can't think of another chapter that is on more placards, more signs, more cross stitches, that is cited at more weddings or anniversaries than the love chapter. And I think that's all fine. It's all appropriate. But we have to understand in its immediate context, this is much more than a pithy st <coughs> statement on love. This is all about spiritual gifts. Chapter 13 is in between chapter 12 and chapter 14. And together, these three are all about spiritual gifts. These gifts that God gives us at the moment in which we accept Christ as personal Savior or later on in our spiritual walk to build up the body of Christ, to bring glory to the Lord, to help one another take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Sometimes people mock the church. They diss the church. They think of the church as irrelevant. But we have to understand when we use that language, when we have those feelings, we are attacking the only institution that God himself created for the world. He calls it his bride. And he makes it clear that he has given us spiritual gifts, each one of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, at conversion or later on in our life as well, 1 Timothy 4, 14, and they are to build up one another. Nobody has all the gifts. We are all interdependent. We need one another. And nobody, nobody will reach the maturity level in Christ that God desires outside of the church. That is God's plan. Now, spiritual gifts are the capacity to excel. They aren't given to us in maturity. We have to work at them, pray, use them, utilize them, get better at them. But they're the capacity to excel in an area of ministry. Gifts are found in 1 Corinthians 7. And 12, 13, and 14, Romans 12, 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4. And if some of the craftsmanship and artistic expressions of the Old Testament are also gifts, like in Exodus 31, we can find them in the Old Testament as well. What are some of the gifts? There's a wide variety. It could be faith. It could be evangelism. It could be teaching. It could be service. It could be mercy. It could be helps. It could be administration. It could be leadership. All of these and many other, wisdom, knowledge, discernment, all of these are gifts. They're the capacity to excel, to build up the body of Christ, to bring glory to God, to help one another take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to try and preach chapter 14 while I'm in chapter 13, but a few of the gifts have caused a lot of rancor in the church. We tend to call them charismatic gifts. I really don't like that phrase because the Greek word for gift is charismata. All of us 
are charismatic Christians in the sense that at the moment in which we prayed to receive Christ, God gave us one or more gifts, charismata. But the phrase charismatic probably refers to individuals who focus on a few gifts more than others, like speaking in tongues with interpretation and miracles and those type of things, healing and the like. They are often called charismatic Christians. And the church, especially in the West, tends to be divided between charismatics and non-charismatics. Charismatics focus on some of those gifts. Non-charismatics don't. Charismatics want to use the gift of tongues and interpretation in the church. Non-charismatics don't. Now, I personally am on the non-charismatic, the cessationist side. I believe that God gave us some gifts like tongues to be utilized prior to all 66 books 39 Old Testament, 27 New Testament books, the completion of canon, and the dissemination of the books to the churches. So about into the 4th century, prior to that, there was a need for people to speak guided by God's Spirit because the completion of the canon did not exist. But the canon is now complete. It's disseminated. So I think in the West... The gift of tongues no longer is necessary. We have the full canon of the word of God. And so a church like Highland will not practice tongues corporately, will not practice tongues in any of our Bible studies, our connection care groups, or in any of our worship services. We think the canon itself, the Bible itself, Scripture itself speaks God's will into our heart. But we don't want to be angry and mean-spirited about it because that would be in contrast to what the text itself says. When it talks about tongues, it says, whatever gift you're utilizing, do so in a spirit of love. So even for a cessationist like me, I can't, with rancor and hatred, rail against those who have a different version or a different understanding of tongues, but we can say that in Highland and in our services and in our Bible studies, we will not practice tongues. Interestingly enough, the church fights over this issue. And what does the Bible say about tongues? It says it is not a higher gift. In other words, it is a lower gift, a less significant gift. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture? Let me read 1 Corinthians 12, 27 to 31a. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles. I don't believe any apostles still exist. Nobody has seen the risen Christ, which I think was one of the requirements of being apostle. God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then he asks a series of rhetorical questions that all demand the answer no in the Greek construction. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret, which goes along with tongues? No. But earnestly desire the higher gifts. We say, whoa, 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 whoa. 
Aren't all gifts the same? The Bible says earnestly desire the higher gifts. In other words, the ones at the top of the list are the higher gifts and the one at the end, tongues and interpretation is the lower gift. And we are fighting over a lower gift when God says when we exercise the gifts, do so in love. And we ought to focus on the higher gifts, not the lower ones. I remember when I was in college, I regularly attended a church and and I had some friends that went to a different church and one particular Sunday, they said, hey, why don't you go to church with us? And I really wasn't that keen on the idea until they said, hey, we're going to have a potluck after church. It's homemade food, all you can eat. And I'm a freshman boy in college. I haven't had home-cooked food in a while and I thought, it must be God speaking to my heart. This is the Holy Spirit. Got to go and have some homemade food. And so I went with them and I thought, you know, I'm not really sure about this. So I'm going to go up in the balcony. And so I was up in the balcony. There were only a few of us up there. And that way, you know, if I thought things didn't sound very biblical, I would leave. And for the first 10 or 15 minutes, the service was fine. And I really don't know exactly what turned it from one to another. I don't know enough. I wasn't initiated. But all of a sudden... It was like controlled chaos. All right, I'm being polite. It was just chaos. Everybody was in the aisles and they were, they were just talking in words I had never heard before, talking one to another. And I didn't know at that time that 1 Corinthians 14 says that if tongues are in a corporate worship, two or at the most three can be uttered and they must be interpreted. And this was like everybody talking at once. And I didn't know that Paul actually made this statement in 1 Corinthians 14. He said, I would rather five words that everyone understands than 10,000 words in the tongues. Now, Paul was actually pro-tongues. He had that gift in the first century. The canon wasn't complete. He had that gift. But he said, in a corporate setting, in a worship setting, give me five words that everyone understands over 10,000 words of tongues. But I didn't know that. All I saw was something I didn't understand. And I earnestly prayed to the Lord. I said, Lord, I don't know what's going on. This is very, very uncomfortable for me. But Lord, if I'm to speak in tongues, I want it to be of you, not of me. Allow me to speak in tongues. God didn't grant that gift. Why? Because what does the text say? Earnestly desire the higher gifts. I was actually praying in contrast to what the Bible says. Earnestly desire the higher gifts. And then what's the next phrase? The end of 1 Corinthians 12. He said, let me show you a more excellent way. What's the more excellent way? Chapter 13, love. Now let's remember that chapter breaks and versification were added by later editors. This was originally a scroll and the last verse in chapter 12, verse 31 And the first verse in chapter 13, verse 1, there wasn't a chapter break. There wasn't versification. It just flowed. So Paul said, let me show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but I have not love, I am only a resounding gong and a clanging cymbal. In other words, 
whatever spiritual gift that God has entrusted to you and me to build up the body of Christ, to bring glory to the Lord, to help one another take the next step in our relationship with Jesus Christ, whatever gift or gifts that God has given us, they need to be exercised always uniquely in an attitude of love. And if not, we could even speak in the the tongues of angels. But if we have not love, we are a resounding gong, a clanging cymbal. I think we lose the understanding of the text because we don't know the historical meaning of a clanging cymbal, a a gong playing. These were actually the, the sounds, the calls to worship of two false gods. Sybil, the mother of all gods, and Dionysus, the Romans called him Bacchus, the god of the wine, revelry, and the vine. When they had worship services, they would have these sounds that would call the worshipers into the temple. Paul says, if you, I, we exercise our spiritual gifts in a spirit of anger, a spirit of bitterness, a spirit of pride to puff ourselves up to get recognition for ourselves, or we do it to put others down, if we exercise our spiritual gifts without love, This is biting sarcasm. We might as well go to a false temple and worship a false goddess or God because that's how kingdom valuable it will be. Now that's hyperbole. Paul doesn't want us going to an idol temple. It's hyperbole. But what he's saying is when we utilize the spiritual gifts that God has given us, we always need to do so in an attitude, a spirit of love. It's not about us, it's about God. It's not about bringing glory to ourselves. It's about building up one another to take the next step in maturity with Christ so that one day when we get to heaven, God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. That is what it is about. Paul goes on in verse two. He says, if I have prophetic powers and if I have an understanding of all mysteries and all knowledge, but I don't have love, even if I can move mountains, it doesn't matter. These are are strong words. Paul's saying we can have all knowledge, we can have all prophetic abilities, we can even have a faith that moves mountains. He's talking about spiritual gifts. If we have certain higher gifts and we have them, at a very high degree, but we don't exercise them with an attitude of love. It's of no kingdom value. No kingdom value. Verse three, if I give all I possess to the poor, if I surrender my body to the flame, but I have not love, it profits me nothing. And we say, what? What does that mean? Surrender my body to the flame? I don't even know what that means. What does that mean, Paul? We have to understand that the the text is historically conditioned. And a couple years prior to God's Spirit leading Paul to pen 1 Corinthians, we had an event that took place very nearby in Athens. A man named Zermano Cengiz, an Indian, came. He was very popular among the philosophers 
He was kind of like this esoteric dude, you know, who had deep thoughts that nobody knew what he was talking about, but everybody thought that he was really wise. And one day to show his self-sacrifice, he lit his body on fire and he died. And all he is is a footnote. He's a footnote of history. There's a little marker in Athens near the Mars rock about Zermano Cengiz, a little, little marker. Actually, bushes have grown over it. He's a footnote. What did he do? Nothing. Nothing of significance. Nothing to change anyone's life. Nothing to advance the kingdom. And that's Paul's point. Paul's point is, if you and I have even remarkable spiritual gifts, and some of you do, praise the Lord, but we don't exercise those gifts because we're lazy and we don't get engaged, or we exercise those gifts in an attitude of anger or rancor or bitterness, it doesn't advance the kingdom. And Paul says it's like a footnote in history. It doesn't matter. It's, it could be self-sacrificial, but if it's not about the Lord and it's not the love of the Lord pouring out in and through us, it gains nothing. Real love is patient. It's kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. That kind of love is what God wants you, me, us to exhibit in our lives. So what does that look like? It may be that God has called you to be a connection care group leader or to work in Generation 180 or with One Way Club or to teach in another capacity or to serve in another capacity. And God says, we've got to exercise whatever gift, a leadership gift, an administrative gift, a servant gift, a discernment gift. We have to exercise these gifts in a spirit of love. And if we don't, we're not doing kingdom work as we think we are. We might be getting accolades ourselves. We might be getting a fan club ourselves, but we're not advancing the kingdom as God desires. Now, Paul is using hyperbole. I know that because in Philippians 1.18, you remember what he says. He says, what then? Only in every way. If Christ is proclaimed, in that I rejoice. And you remember in Philippians 1, there were individuals who were teaching about Christ, but they were doing it to elevate themselves. And Paul didn't like it. God doesn't like it. But Paul says, hey, if some advancement actually happens, I'm going to rejoice in that. That's God's grace. That's the exception, not the rule. What God wants from us is to exercise our giftedness in an attitude of love. Will sometimes God use our giftedness in spite of an attitude of love? We all know that's true. We know individuals, pastors who have fallen, leaders who have fallen, and we now learn about their real lives behind the scenes. The curtain is pulled back. And we still know that God used them in our life to mature us and grow us. But imagine, imagine what God would have done if when the curtain was drawn back, they were what they pretended to be. 
how much more God would have used them, what, how much more he would use us. And so the first thing I want to remind myself is whatever spiritual gift that God has entrusted to me, to you, we need to exercise it, not about ourselves, not to get our way, not to bully people or push people around. We need to exercise them in an attitude of love. And that leads to the second part. When we exercise in an attitude of love, what happens? Someday we're going to get to heaven and God is going to say, well done. He's going to say this to some of you, many of you. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been entrusted with a little. Now you will be entrusted with much. Come and enter into my rest. And so I don't know what spiritual gift you have. Maybe it's service. Maybe it's artistic worship or helps or administration or exhortation. Maybe it's wisdom or leadership or knowledge or discernment or a wide variety of other gifts. But whatever gift God has entrusted to you, entrusted to me, let us learn to exercise them in an attitude of love. I want to paraphrase verses 1 to 8. It's a paraphrase. It's not Scripture. It's infinitely less than Scripture. But I think it captures a little bit of what Paul is getting at. Think of these as Paul's contemporary words like to the 21st century. He says, now let me show you the most excellent way. If I am highly educated and I can hold audiences with my words, if I exemplify the gifts of Dale Carnegie and Toastmasters, but I do so without love, I am a charlatan windbag serving myself rather than the Lord. If I can proclaim truths in a relevant way, if I have ability to solve wisdom quandaries, if I even partially divest my portfolio in order to advance the kingdom, but I do it for self-gratification or praise from others, and I don't do it out of an attitude of love, the kingdom impact will be less. If I give my extras to the rescue mission, if I never pass by a Salvation Army kettle without putting something in, but I do it so that people will think better of me rather than to help others for God's glory. What does it profit? Real love is about the Lord. So what are we wanting to remember today? Spiritual gifts exist for every Christ follower. At the moment in which you and I, by faith, accepted the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ as the sole atonement, the sole payment of our sin, and believed in Christ and received him as Savior, at that moment you and I were given a spiritual gift or gifts. Some have even been given more later on in their life. 1 Corinthians 12, earnestly desire the greater gifts, or 1 Timothy 4, 14. Timothy got some additional gifts through the laying on of hands when he was about to go out and minister. And these are the potential, the potential to excel in ministry. We have to develop the gifts, and they're only these purposes to bring glory to God and to advance God's kingdom, to help one another take the next step in one's relationship with Christ. God created us to need one another. He created us to do ministry together. He created us to worship corporately. 
to become all that God desires for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, that you would give individuals like us spiritual gifts. What grace. And Father, we want to exercise those gifts, so help us to not only discover the gift or gifts that you have given us, but to use them for your glory in your body, the church, to help others and ourselves take the next step in our relationship with you. And Father, may we each examine, may I examine, may each of us examine how we're utilizing our spiritual gifts. We want to utilize those gifts with authentic love and to bring glory to your name. It's in the name of your matchless son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.